Welcome to the Badger Cast, a podcast by the Tommy G. Thompson Center on Public Leadership. I'm Ryan Owens, the director of the Thompson Center. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks everyone for being with us today. We are pleased to have on the podcast today, Sean Stevens. Sean is a senior research fellow in polling and analytics at FIRE, which stands, of course, for the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. He earned his PhD in social psychology from Rutgers in 2013. He spent three years as the first research director and later as postdoctoral fellow at the Rutgers Social Perceptions Lab. He's been affiliated with the Center for Advanced Studies in the Behavioral Sciences and Best Practices in Science Movement, both of which are located at Stanford University. In 2016, Dr. Stevens joined Heterodox Academy's first director of research, where he developed the Campus Expression Survey, which gauges whether students are afraid to share their ideas openly in school. Of course, this is an issue that the Thompson Center itself has recently been engaged in. So uh, before we get into that, just uh, let's give the listeners a little bit of background. So your biography talks about how you research moral convictions and how moral convictions can produce motivated reasoning. And that, of course, can have negative downstream consequences as well. So give us a little context. What does that mean? And how does that prepare you to do this research? Yeah, I'll uh, try to keep that brief. Uh, that, that idea was kind of the main focus of my dissertation studies. Underlying that is that I think there's a lot of good scholarship and, and empirical evidence that suggests most, if not all, of our political views are manifestations of, of underlying moral values or beliefs or attitudes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you can understand the moral values that people have, you can better predict perhaps what they're going to have strong convictions about Mm -hmm. uh, and then where they might be where and how that might impact their reasoning in the political domain. So sometimes some of that together, you know, that scholarship also suggests that uh, when someone is morally outraged, uh, that leads to more emotional, like motivated reasoning and, and less of a focus on kind of like the rational, slow consideration of evidence. Um, so it can increase things like confirmation bias, um, you know, just kind of looking, looking for things that support your point of view and downplaying or ignoring things that do not. Um, outrage in the moral domain uh, also licenses kind of like derogatory behavior towards the target or targets that you believe have engaged in immoral behavior. Interesting. So when I put all this kind of together uh, in the political realm and, and thinking that a lot of political talk is, is basically moral talk yep. uh, in, in a lot of ways, uh, you can then kind of start to see how this can play out. And, and in effect, it, an idea I've been working on recently and, and trying to kind of work my way through and figure out just how to explain it well is that it, it kind of helps create like a positive feedback loop of like polarization and outrage right. in the United States. So a positive feedback loop is effectively something happens and then the reaction to that makes the, the likelihood of this happening again more yep. likely. Yep. Yep. Uh, and so in American politics, we can have, regardless of left or right, we can have an actor on one side, say something, express something, engage in some behavior that then causes outrage on the rival side they react in a way that then causes outrage 
on the original person's side and you're just going back and forth. Yeah. And, and I'd say that's exactly where we are right now, particularly yeah. with social media. I mean, you get attention mm-hmm. in the news media today by being extreme and outlandish and each side seems to be trying to outdo one another. You know, you got AOC on the one side saying crazy things and then, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene now yep. uh, appearing to be the new sort of poster child for the left attack on the right. And it just, you know, back and forth, back and forth it goes. So it's interesting how this then can apply to free speech values in motivated reasoning. So, you know, First Amendment for me, but not for thee. Yeah. Uh, And that seems to be where we're at with a lot of things. So let's talk a little bit about this study. Now, obviously we've done one of our own recently. We've got some attention for that. That's fine. We can talk a little bit about that if you'd like, but I'm interested in hearing a little bit about your recent study, what you guys did. So give us a little bit of background on that, what you do and what you find. Yeah. So the study itself was, you know, the, the idea for it actually began in like May of April, May of 2019, mm-hmm. actually, was the idea. Um, kind of just a group of people from various different organizations that that care about like free expression, opening for etc. Um, I mean, it was spearheaded by fire, but you know, I was at Heterodox Academy at the time. Mm-hmm. Our education was also involved, uh, and we kind of had this very big powwow of how can we measure. Not, not just measure these attitudes among students. I mean, because, you know, the Gallup Knight studies are doing that and you kind of have these one-off campus-specific studies like yours, but there's, you know, a handful of others. Mm-hmm. We've also done that. We wanted to do something where we both get kind of a very large national sample, but also be able to identify, you know, which students come from which campus. So we could answer questions of like, is this a national culture? Okay. something like this present at certain types of schools and not others. Right. Um, and then the, obviously the second goal of this was we wanted to create some kind of ranking system for the schools yep. uh, and, and kind of rank them based on the survey responses. So we want to, we try to be very clear that, you know, the rankings right now, they're, they're, these rankings are largely based on student perceptions, right? Mm-hmm. So the right. student perception is, is their perception. I can't, you know, maybe it's accurate, maybe it's inaccurate, right. um, but this is kind of how students are perceiving and experiencing their campuses. Yeah, yeah. So um, you can't so, scale. I mean, you, it's difficult to scale across the campuses because you know one one university might have a different sort of culture than another university, and that, I think that makes a lot of sense. And just just to be clear for people um, who are listening, yeah. so the name of this study is it's the College Pulse Fire and Real Clear Education 2020 College Free Speech rankings survey yep. is that correct okay yeah and, and our and, goal is to we would like to expand this project to to a larger amount of schools um, okay in the coming years uh, and that yep. is, is definitely one of our goals but there were i mean there were a number what 55 different universities was that right yep. that, that you sampled in here okay uh so that's a pretty wide swath you've got public universities private universities large small a fairly decent representation of, of universities I would, I would say they probably are those 55. So there's like one small liberal arts school uh, included in the sample mm-hmm. um, that was kind of thrown in as a, they weren't actually initially targeted, but there was just enough students at that school. Yeah. Um, so our, our polling partner decided to also include them. The other 54, I, I, I would say, I mean, it's, they, they definitely vary in size. Mm-hmm. There's some very large state schools. There's some smaller state schools, there's some, all eight Ivy League schools are there. Most of them have, you know, smaller levels of enrollment. But the one thing I would say is the majority of schools probably would be considered 
top tier research universities. Okay. In subsequent uh, runs, if we're able to do them, you know, we want to include a, a much larger swath of schools. So yeah, we'll still include these top tier research universities, but we also want to include more liberal arts colleges. We want to include some R2s, R3s, mm-hmm. et cetera, to look at because these 55 largely focus on what you would probably consider elite or near elite uh, okay. campuses. All right. Yeah. So, so give us the top line results and then we can kind of burrow down a little bit as well. I think the listeners are probably dying to hear, right? What, what, what were the results? So tell us a little bit about those top liners and then we'll, we'll dig. Yeah. So I, I guess the, the, the biggest top line result that I would, I would say is yes, we ranked these schools, uh, but I was actually overall, they all have, even the ones that ranked highly have a lot of room for improvement, right? Mm-hmm. We have a scale of zero to a hundred. We've scaled it to the range from uh, what well, it could be. They could, uh, in theory, a school could get a zero and then get dinged for having a red fire rating and finish with a negative four. I don't think that'll ever happen. I don't think a school <laughs> will have a zero like through our metrics. Um, I also don't think it's conceivably possible for someone to get a hundred on this, right? I, I don't know what the, the, highest quote score possible would be, but I, I, I would like to believe it's higher than 65, which is mm-hmm. roughly where our top school is ranked. Okay. Um, so the top line result I would say across the board is all, all of these 55 schools, even the ones that rank well, I think still have a lot of room for improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Then as we kind of move a little bit deeper into the specifics of the results, um, I think we've, there, there's evidence of to a degree, a national culture around mm-hmm. these issues. Um, there, like if you dig deep and compare specific schools to each other, you will find uh, a lot of differences in responses, you know, at the individual levels. But overall, this, a lot of schools kind of cluster pretty closely to each other and, and the patterns of results look somewhat similar. Um, you know, some, one school, the, the difficult topic or the, the quote, topic identified as most difficult to discuss might be gun control and in another one it might be race but at both schools those topics seem to be quote more difficult to discuss than some other topics right um, okay then in, in you know moving a little bit beyond that we, we found that in terms of tolerance for extreme speakers it's not very high uh, we didn't have tolerance for any of our extreme speakers exceed 50 percent we did find an interesting thing, which represents somewhat represents a reversal of, of prior scholarship, but it's also consistent with some other scholarship that's come out in recent years where okay. we are no longer finding that being more liberal is, is correlated with more tolerance across the board. Right. right. Um, we're, we're kind of seeing uh, basically, you know, both liberal and conservative students not being very tolerant of most extreme speakers, but typically the conservatives are a little more tolerant overall. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is, that represents a reversal from, from a lot of scholarship in the past, uh, but we're also not the only ones who have found that. There's some peer reviewed studies that have found that recently and some other surveys have found that including yours, I believe. Um, so, you know, we found that, um, we found a disturb. I, I, I actually think the rate it might be higher because of the way we asked the question and I would ask this question differently um, in a future run, but we found that 60% of students said they can recall one instance of self-censorship. Right. Yeah, okay. I saw that. Yep. Um, so I actually think that's probably low because 
I, I really feel like pretty much all of us have self-censored at some time. <laughs> well, uh, but that, that has also been me admitting, asking that as a yes, no question probably wasn't the best way to ask it. And it, it should be asked as a frequency question. So I'd like to change sure. that to a more frequency-based question, you know, in a subsequent run of this survey. Because uh, I think that'll just provide more interesting data. Yeah. Well, I think you raise a good point here, though. It's that something that I've noticed on this is that the, the questions, it's tricky because you want to ask questions that are enough to the point that a person doesn't have to read a treatise before they yep. answer the question. But at the same time, you want to have enough specificity that you can feel confident in, in what the answers are. And, you know, one of the things that we experienced is that, you know, people can pick at nits on some questions, but then when you look holistically at the results, you nevertheless see a trend in, in yeah. one direction or another. And I, that's definitely something that I saw in your survey. It's something that we saw in ours as well. So there's something going on. I mean, it is absolutely clear that there is something going on here. And I think what your study shows as well is there are various degrees or various instrumentalities of censorship, suppression, what have you. And there, there's the top-down kind, but then there is also the peer kind as yeah. well. And that to me, I mean, they both seem like incredibly important things. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, we can address okay. one, but it's a little tougher yeah. to address the other, right? So, so I, I actually think the the peer pressure or i guess normative pressure too because it might also come from adults on the campus or the broader society it might not just be directly one's peers but i think that's far more dangerous than the administrative forms of censorship because i mean those are those are like fairly what you can see them when they happen they're like well documented a lot of times they're taking um an administrative administrator might be applying a, like a vaguely worded policy in a, in a way that's like, well, you're applying it to this student or professor, but you didn't apply it over here. And this seems like a very similar case. Yep. And there's kind of legal, exactly. there's legal um, avenues you can take in these situations. In the, the peer situation or in the normative situation, there, there really isn't one. I mean, you're, you're, you're acknowledging that you're not you don't want to bring up your views because you fear the potential for social sanction yep which which we that's much harder to police but i also think it's far more dangerous yeah, um, and i think right. we're seeing i think we see more of more and more of that going on today yeah, yeah. Uh, i think that you know there's a recent paper by james gibson a very well respected political scientist who's out of uh, washington university yeah, in St. Louis. Well, i know jim very well came out um, this past summer, he traced back, now granted, the questions aren't identical, so we could, you know, point that out, but he went back to about the mid-1950s, you know, found the first uh, polling assessments of self-censorship, mm -hmm. has kind of traced them through the decades, and has concluded that we're at the, we're at historical high rates of self-censorship today in the United States, among the general public. Um, and so that he kind of put that paper out um, this summer. Um, and like I said, it's, it's probably, it's probably something like eight or 10 data points over the past 70 years, right. From, from different surveys. Sure. But his it's conclusion not, not optimal, that, but still it's better than yeah. nothing. And it does place it in context. Yeah. Um, it's, it, I think this is an interesting point. So, you know, two examples just popped to mind. And I was talking to some students two nights ago from one of the system schools. I won't say which one it was. They lived in the dorm. So they, they said the, the room immediately below them had a bunch of Black Lives Matter placards, uh, posters in the window. And they had in theirs, just one floor above, they had a Republican elephant. 
And the university came in and told them they had to take their elephant down because it was a fire hazard, but did nothing to the, to the BLM posters. Yeah. So I'd say that is, that's like a perfect example of the like arbitrary, arbitrary way that administrators apply policies. If the policy is that you can't have political images and in, in, which seems ridiculous that a student can't have a political poster right. up in their dorm room. Um, but if the policy is you can't have that out facing or something, then it applies to both yep. or it doesn't apply to both. It, it's, right. it's kind of, it's, it's, it, if you're going to have one student take their posters down from their dorm room, which is their domicile, uh, then the other one should be required to, I don't think either of them should be required to take these posters down. Right. Right. Uh, That's that right. would be my view of it, but, yeah, I think that's a great example of, and this is something that Fire talks about a lot, how the policies are kind of arbitrarily, you know, meted out yeah. in effect or, or arbitrarily applied um, when convenient. <laughs> and, and in terms of the self-censorship, I, I see that a lot in the classes when I teach. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I will see students, I will hear them before they begin answering a question, they'll say, well, I, I know that, you know, as a white male, I'm going to say that this way, or, you know, I, I hesitate to say this because I know that it's not going to be a popular thing to say. And I have to tell my students, I say, do not preface your comments yeah. that way. Make your point, just make your point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we're seeing that more and more and more. So, as I said before, that that's difficult to uh, to to administer. That's difficult to to root out. Um, but we can certainly model appropriate behavior, yeah. hoping that it drives students. So, you know, one of the things that we talked about um, in the the results section of our study was that maybe universities could do more to train students on First Amendment principles. Maybe require them to take a class. I, I get the irony with that, of course, uh, but <laughs> you know. Uh, this is an important thing and students have to be familiar with what these are. And, and so often they respond with, you know, I don't feel safe uh, or, you know, this, this is hurtful. I mean, one of the things we heard was your survey is hurtful. All you're trying to do is platform hate groups. Well, no, that, that's not the point. So what is your response to those <laughs> concerns? Cause I'm sure you hear them on a daily basis. Yeah, so I, I'll, before hitting that, I want to, I'll point out on the self-censorship thing and, and individual experiences. Uh, we didn't talk about these much in the report, but if you go to either Fire's site, College Pulse's site, Rural Education, you can get to these rankings at any of those sites. I urge your listeners and anyone interested to explore the open-ended comments that mm. we received from students in response to the self-censorship question. Uh, there, uh, a number of them are very rich and detailed and kind of convey what you described. That, that, and, and actually what I found most interesting um, in those comments, and granted, this is more of a gut impression from having gone through and read all of them. And we removed ones that had kind of identifying info, you okay. know, things like that, or ones that were just gibberish or, or whatever. Um, and actually only wound up, out of 5,500 comments or so, only wound up removing two or 300 um, which I think is pretty impressive that the students at the end of a survey still wrote some pretty detailed comments. Right. Uh, what I, one thing I noticed that popped out to me, and, and I would take this with a grain of salt until someone more qualitative research was done on this, but liberals would talk about how they couldn't express themselves if they were in the minority around conservatives. And then obviously conservatives said the same thing. Mm. So I noticed both groups basically saying that. Um, yeah. So that was just, 
I just wanted to kind of point that out and, and direct people to those um, quotes because they're really interesting. And now just please remind me of the, the really good question you asked me uh, before I went on that tangent. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that, that's fine. I'll, I'll ask that in a second. But it, that, that is an interesting point. And, and I talk with people all the time about why it might be the case that people right now do not, I hate to say feel because so much of this is feeling. And when you're in college, it's supposed to be about uh, reason, not feelings, right? But, you know, why it is that so many people feel as though they can't make contradictory comments, whether it's the fact that we're just taught now in schools everywhere that you've got to get along with everybody. Uh, I mean, of course, that's normatively a good thing, but perhaps we've swung that pendulum too far and, and mm -hmm. stamped out what can be reasonable debate. I don't know. But anyways, so the question that I, that I did ask is, you know, how do you respond to the criticisms of people who say you're just trying to platform hate groups? Because obviously that's not the point, right? I mean, what I tell people is, this is not the point, obviously, right? The point here is we got to keep our eye on the long-term game here. And that is, if you hand the keys to the automobile over to the federal government to let you know what you can say, what you can't say, what you can think, what you can't think, we're going to be in one hell of a problem, you know, one hell of a, of a ditch here pretty soon. Um, I'm not sure that's enough to assuage people but what what yeah. are your thoughts how do you respond so, to that i mean yeah I, I on that i you know not surprising that i agree with with that stance um i you know i agree with kind of ira glazer's view on this that he's you know he's been on a number of interviews lately because of the mighty ira film uh, that that fire produced mm -hmm. um it's important to keep in mind that at, at an, for, for each at for each individual i think it's important to keep in mind that even if you really have this strong motivation to censor someone or you really think someone should be censored and you, and you want these like official policies that would, would make it easy to do this, I, I would urge people to keep in mind that you're probably never going to be the one making, you're not ever going to be the one making the decision of how to implement that policy and who that policy, you know, targets or is directed at. And that's something that Ira Glazer like talked about, talks about a lot in terms of like, this is why placing limits on freedom of speech can be very dangerous mm -hmm. um, because it ultimately will probably turn, be turned back on you. Um, and I actually think a recently a good example of this, and I don't think this got as much play as uh, it should have is so in the aftermath of the Capitol demonstrations, protests, riots, whatever you want to call them, you know, par parlor, parlay gets taken down. Right. Um, Twitter bans Donald Trump, a number of other accounts. Mm -hmm. um, and people are cheering this on. A few days later, they banned a number of far left anti-fascist accounts as well. Mm -hmm. Pretty sure, I, I, I would venture to, I would wager I would, I would wager that a number of those people whose accounts got wrapped up in that second ban of, of the more left-wing, far-left accounts were mm -hmm. cheering on the right. bans of Donald Trump. That's right. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I would wager that most of them probably were. And so this is, I think that is a really good example of, yeah, you cheered this on, but you're not the decision maker. You're not making the decision of who the hammer comes down on. And what a surprise, it came down on you too. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, I mean, that makes sense to me. I mean, I think but people, it, it, it's a hard position to get to. That's, well, it, it is. And, and yeah. people like you and me, I think are just sort of naturally skeptical of, of others who are in positions of authority. And so that that's an argument that I think 
appeals to, to people like us. But, some people, for, but not all people. Exactly. That, that's right. That's right. Yeah. But for, for folks, you know, if, if you take as a granted that universities are, um, you know, essentially dominated by uh, progressives, which I think the data suggests more or less today, and you're a student of that ilk, I think you can be reasonably assured that on average, in the long run, uh, speech will be censored in the direction that you prefer. Mm -hmm. uh, so what there then? Because I, I suspect that argument that you just laid out is not going to necessarily appeal yeah. to those folks, right? Yeah. So, so what do you say? I mean, at that point, is it just you got to appeal to historical precedent? You know, this has always been used against the minority in the past. What, what do you do? I, that would, you know, that's <laughs> that's probably my next argument would be, yeah. that would yeah. be my next uh, uh, place to go of just like, let's think about history. Let's think about how hard earned it was to, to get these rights for everybody, how the, how this right has really certainly in the last century in this country um, really expanded, like who has the ability to participate in public discussion, who has the ability to vote, who has the, a lot of things, um, you know, we go back, you know, roughly a hundred years and we had white men voting mm -hmm. basically. Right. Uh, we didn't have, you know, women only got the, the right to vote in, in the early 20th century. And, and then there were, you know, lots of restrictions on minority voters, you know, with the Jim Crow laws, etc. And so throughout history, we've seen people in power try to silence minority voices and people or groups that they consider a threat to their power. Right. Yeah, exactly. It, you know, you look at the abolitionist movement, uh, you know, that's that's a, mm -hmm. a, a critical one. You know, yeah. their free speech rights were violated hand over fist. And had we not had, you know, some implementation or, or application of the First Amendment, I think it would have been a, a serious problem. So I think that's right. It's difficult, though, to make that long term argument to people when in the short run, you know, they admittedly, some of them do feel, you know, in, at risk and in danger. So let's talk just briefly here towards the end of this discussion. And I, I found this fascinating. And again, you know, your data are, are suggesting all kinds of things that um, mm -hmm. students are self-censoring, that uh, they're answering that they've, uh, you know, not shared their perspective in class because they felt like they couldn't do it in front of their teachers or administrators. All, all of the same similar things that we found as well. Um, disinvitations are on the rise. People seem comfortable punishing hate speech, however vaguely defined that may or may not be. And it's conservatives and liberals, although, you know, in our, our results, not surprisingly, because UW-Madison UW is, is predominantly liberal, uh, it seemed like the liberals were a little bit less protective of speech than conservatives. We have issues across the board, to be sure. Yeah. So the, the, the final question here is, what, what in the world can we do about this? Uh, <laughs> right? So I talked to, uh, just a second ago about the irony of, you know, requiring students to take First Amendment classes. But I mean, you know, K-12 is an issue, you know, by the time yeah. they get to colleges, there's an issue already built. I mean, what in the world can we do about this? I, you know, and I'm, I, I, I will admit, I'm actually honestly somewhat skeptical that, you know, a, a single class in the First Amendment or, or American government or civil liberties is, is the magic bullet. I, mm. I, I would hope that it certainly helps a little bit. And I also, I, I think, I think the issue is bigger than can, can you, you know, somehow start inculcating these values when students get to college, I, I think it is something that needs to happen earlier mm -hmm. uh, in K through 12. I think there needs to be some way, I, and I don't have the answer to how to do this. Yeah, you know, fostering or inculcating um, just more, 
I get less uh, less certainty in one's own uh, that one's own views and beliefs are just a hundred percent correct. Mm. Um, more humility, humility. Uh, yeah. Being being open to just being open to exploring different ideas, um, and and you know being a little trying to have a little bit more compassion or even just a little compassion, because maybe there's none <laughs> in some people, uh, for people that have different views. I, you know, I think what helps me a lot and what helped me get there uh, as, I, as I've gotten older uh, is just I look at so much data like every day that shows me that the majority of people in this country are actually not that far apart on most political issues. They mm -hmm. might disagree. They might have a different stance here or there, but the gulf between most people is not that large. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I really think we can get there if you just, like we can, we can kind of cross some of those divides if, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of willing to just like treat the other person as a human being and, and yeah. learn. Um, I think having, you know, maybe another way that I think it's helped in my life um, just being more politically tolerant is, you know, I play a lot of ice hockey. So I have a lot of friends who are actually cops and firemen and they obviously have more politically conservative views than, than I do as someone who holds a PhD. Mm -hmm. um, but we, we, we're not friends because of our politics. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're friends because we have this other common interest that we are like really both that we're really all into. And so that was built up first and then it was like, Oh, so you happen to be kind of conservative. Mm -hmm. Well, okay yeah right that, that's right remember, i remember the time when it was you know you didn't talk about religion and politics with people right uh, until you were best friends with them and then you could do it and and we certainly need to get back to that i, I do think you know with k-12 it's ironic that you, there's such a drive right now in the schools for inclusivity and and listening to others yet somehow that message seems to be getting lost along the way yeah and i don't know why that is but it's a hell of a problem and I agree with you. We've got a growing amount of intolerance across the country and across the board, and we got to do something yeah. to, to wrap that up. So, well, I, I appreciate this. Uh, yeah. Any final thoughts or anything about the survey or any thoughts so, on this? So one final thought I did have that I, yeah. in terms of the question of how you can maybe persuade fence sitters on this issue, maybe, right? I think mm -hmm. there's probably people that are unpersuadable um, to see things the way like, like people like we do. But I think there's a lot of people that are movable. Um, the last thing I would maybe suggest, and, and this might have a shelf life, but particularly to, to liberals, people on the left, one thing I've pointed out over the past four years is, so you want all these laws passed and you want Donald Trump to be the one making the calls of who is and is not censored. Mm. Right. <laughs> uh, I don't think you want that, basically. I'm pretty sure you don't actually. So um, that might have a shelf life, but I, I have found on, on an individual level that, that that seems to be a little persuasive to some people. Yeah, You can get them to just stop and think like, whoa, this, this guy that you basically see as pure evil would be the one calling the shots. Right. Put some perspective and context on it. I mean, we see the same argument, of course, with unilateral presidential authority. It swings back and forth. You know, people love uh, executive orders and then they hate them and then they love them yep. and then they hate them, depending on who the president is. And yeah. it would be nice to have some consistency. But yeah. there you go. I guess it is the hobgoblin of little minds. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so they say. So they say, well, look, this has been really informative. Uh, yeah. 
I appreciate the conversation. The uh, The survey was the 2020 College Free Speech Ranking Survey. Um, I, I suggest everybody go to the FIRE website, check it out, uh, Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education. Check it out. UW-Madison is in that survey. We didn't talk a whole lot about it. I can just say that UW-Madison did not perform particularly well in that nope. survey, which is not a surprise given. And actually, though, to your point about um, liberal students on a, on a more liberal campus may be feeling like like they can express themselves better. The one area they did well was was that liberals they were they did very well in the self censorship domain. Oh right, well I guess <laughs> basically so. students saying that they didn't feel like they had to, to self. <laughs> right. Shocker, right? Shocker when you all agree it's it's not uh, it's not that courageous. Okay, well uh, again I recommend everybody take a look at that survey. It's really informative. This is a big problem. It's it's not just a problem among liberals. It's a problem across the board, and we need to think uh, all of us pretty carefully about what kind of a world we want to live in. Do we want to live in a world where people get deplatformed, disinvited, spoken, shouted down? Or do we want to live in an environment where people can say things that may be detestable, but we take it upon ourselves to uh, try to persuade them of the error of their ways? Certainly leave you to make those judgments on your own. But in the meantime, I want to thank Sean Stevens for joining us. Appreciate your time. Appreciate the work you've done. And I wish you all the best. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tommy G. Thompson Center on Public Leadership. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a positive review so we can expand our audience. Thanks for listening. And remember, liberty is a blessing. Thank you.